Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1136, with guest Jeffrey Strauss. Recorded Friday, April 17th, 2015. And welcome back. It's Carl Franklin. And Richard Campbell. And we're here for .NET Rocks. I like that. I hope that's why you're here, too. Man, we, we just totally rocked the uh, .NET Fringe Conference in Portland. Had a ton of fun there, didn't we? And, uh, and it's just now, now the crazy spring conference season goes. I mean, it's, yeah. we, we went to Fringe a couple of weeks ago. Now it's, uh, I think this is actually coming out during Build. Yeah. And then next week is Ignite, which I'm going to as the run as guy. Yeah. And then a couple of weeks after that is Dev Intersection. And uh hey, um I got a tweet while I was at .net fringe oh, yeah? about something that I should talk about for Better Know Framework. So I'm awesome. going to just pull it up now. Roll that stuff. That thing. That funky music. That funky music. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? So uh, this was sent in, as I said, by Twitter from Omar Elabdi. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but it's E-L-A-B-D. And uh, this is Object Exporter. So go to tinyurl.com slash object exporter, which you will see on the Visual Studio extensions website we don't spend enough time on this thing there's, there's so much good stuff in the visual studio gallery i know i just started looking around for the first time in a couple of years actually yeah, yeah. there's so many good things it's amazing so uh this is omar's tool it's called object exporter it creates serializations of in-memory objects from your various debugging windows currently supported output formats are c-sharp object initialization code json and xml so remember i told you about that great thing where you can just paste to xml paste to c sharp um paste to json or whatever right yep in visual studio well this is sort of that on steroids nice and uh, there's a little animated gif that just goes over and over again here where you take some uh json code and just paste it into whatever you want you want a c sharp object you want xml you want json go from one format to the other Beautiful. It's pretty awesome. This, yeah, no, this is this is almost exactly what you were describing when you were talking about this before. It's like we need a tool that. Yep. Yeah, there it is. From one to the other to the other. You found it, and there it is. Object exporter, and it's free. Know it, learn it, love it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show nine forty eight, the one we did with uh, Mr. John Zuck. Yep. We were talking about patents. Oh yeah. All right, so seeing how we're doing a little legal thing today, I thought we'd, we'd reference back to this one because Steve Richter had this great comment. Of course, we know the mess that software patents are. And, uh, and Steve says, the problem with software patents is it arguably makes it illegal for a programmer to do what he does. That is, write code that solves a problem. If the solution the programmer comes up with was patented by someone else, then that code can only be used if the patent holder grants permission. No. Which in the real world is not a problem since who is to know? Well, you know, that's that that 
is very true, isn't it? I mean, if I'm being contracted to write some software and I yeah. use something that resembles something else, who cares? I'm not selling it to to the public, right? Yeah. Well, now we get in this whole look and feel battle, right? Remember that fight way back when with the Mac and the PC yeah. and stuff? Like, right. this is where this absurdity comes in. It's like... How do you know? And you know, patents are so vague, which is exactly what uh, Steve goes into, right? When the programmer tries to make a living by selling copies of his code, that is when the legal system lowers the boom. It's not really the legal system. That's when the patent trolls come flying right, out. Right, right. But, you know, you're not actually breaking a law per se. This is a negotiation that they can you know, turn into an ugly thing. No one is going to buy your code because they don't know if there are patented methods used in that code. If the buyer does use the programmer's code as a component in a business application, the buyer could potentially be forced to stop using that application because it inadvertently uses a patented method. And then he asks, is the above statement actually uh, correct? Am I, you know, I'm just, I'm posing a question here. And uh, it's not that simple, you know. What what are you what are you actually able to patent and what's enforceable to boot right? Remember when there was that I mean the whole debate about whether one click from Amazon was a patentable capability that you click on a button and that completes the sale. That pretty much is the most ridiculous argument I've ever heard in my life. Click a button. Yeah, we have a patent on button clicking. A button clicking to sell something. Yeah, right. It's it's absurd. Yeah. Um, and at the same, you know, the funny part here is there's what patents you own, what you're willing to enforce, and, you know, what is sort of socially acceptable. Most of the folks that have big blocks of patents, you know, the Microsofts and Googles of the world, they just can't handle the, the PR negativity of attacking an individual developer like that. It's the trolls that scare me, the organizations that exist solely for the purpose of, for, of gathering and enforcing patents. And they tend to work, they're the extortionists. They work behind the scenes, kind of keep it secret, and uh, don't want the limelight. And as soon as the limelight comes on them, often they walk away. Yeah. Uh, there are no simple answers around here. But I think what's cool about Steve's particular argument is this is the one, that argument of you're impairing my ability to make a living. Because I had no intent here. I didn't copy anything from anyone here. I just solved the problem my customer was asking for. Uh, that's what would ultimately break software patents. This whole area is so ripe for reformation. It's, it's hard to get your head around. Uh, not that I feel like I'll give you a good answer, Steve, but thank you so much for your comment. The .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps, because we've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our guest today. Jeff Strauss is a custom software developer and consultant based in St. Louis, Missouri. He has been a licensed attorney since 2004 and is part of the firm Architect Now. He specializes in product development and project work for startups and small to mid-sized companies, both locally and across the United States. While he doesn't practice law as his day job anymore, he does apply his knowledge and background to assist his clients through the variety of issues facing small software companies today. Jeff also serves on the board of directors for the St. Louis.net user group and the St. Louis Day of .net Developer Conference, or shall Love I it. say Days of .net mm -hmm. Developer Conference, which Richard and I were at two years ago. And uh Jeff and uh and uh Jason Fallis were were behind us on the distillery tour, one car behind us. Yeah, right. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> Welcome, Jeff. Hey, thanks. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I appreciate you guys being uh, 
being patient with my schedule too with the new baby and all this is uh congratulations really congratulations babies Thank come you. first you know that's good Thank stuff you. she's growing fast already oh it's awesome and uh yeah i'm i'm sorry i misspoke that we weren't at the st louis days of net we were at code palooza two years right, ago right. on the distillery right, tour right. um are you going to that conference again this year uh yeah i am i'm going down to code palooza again this year uh it's in a couple of weeks i'm giving Two talks, my my open source uh, considerations talk, which uh, like like what we're discussing today here, and then I also give a talk uh, about the legal and tax implications of starting a new business. So I'll be I'll be down there at the end of this month. It's a great great show. Well, it seems like open source is on everybody's mind these days. Even if it wasn't a couple of years ago, uh, we're sort of as .NET developers being dragged into that world, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, the core CLR is open source in February. The .NET team announced that the .NET core CLR, anyway, is is uh, the execution engine it is is open. And I know that there's a whole bunch of stuff around that that we need to know, and even some opinions that uh, that that people are expressing. What's your take on it? Well, I mean, my my take is. is I think what they're trying to do is great. You know, if, if we watch what, what Microsoft's been doing, not only with the core CLR, but, uh, you know, with MVC, with a lot of things over the last several years, they've been slowly opening up a large portion of their code base. Um, what's been interesting about the core CLR and, you know, some of the opinions that people have been, have been sharing and, and some discussions I've been having with colleagues is, uh, more about how they have chosen to open up the core CLR. And it's interesting. You know, I think, like you said, it's it's a growing field, right? Open source has always been there, but it's become more of a corporate thing, right? As right. the proliferation of open source software grows and becomes more and more a part of the corporate space, uh, licenses have evolved as well. And, you know, whereas if you think about historically, um, historically, a lot of the licenses were either very, what, what we call these copyleft licenses, which we can talk about, like, like uh, the GPLs of the world, Copy left versus copyright. I get it. Yeah. Uh, well, sort of. Right. Right. And we'll talk about kind of what those, what that means, okay. but we're talking about the, these GPL licenses or historically there were academic licenses like the MIT license, the BSD license, which came out of Berkeley. You know, those older licenses don't talk about patents and patents are a big deal and they really don't address them at all. Uh, because they're academic and, and software patenting and software copyright was not the same, uh, behemoth that it is today. And yeah. so, you know, as as we've seen more corporate software uh, entities like Microsoft and Google opening up their software, um, you're seeing licenses like Apache, which, if I'm not mistaken, like the humanitarian toolbox uses Apache, right? Yeah, right. isn't that right. right? You know, and licenses like that that are more corporate friendly, they're still open, but they talk about patent licenses and patent grants. Um, that's what Microsoft has used for a great deal of their software. What's interesting is when they announced that the .NET Core would be opened up, they're using the MIT license. And in a lot of respects, that's, I mean, that's the most permissive license there is, right? It effectively says, here it is, as is, and do what you want with it. But, but the problem, and that sounds really great, right? On its face, that sounds great. Uh, the problem is that gives corporate counsel some pause sometimes. I think it gives, um, you know, there's uncertainty there because when we talk about a, a license, you know, license isn't about ownership. License is about giving access. Right. And, uh, you know, ownership, there's different kinds of ownership. There's copyright, there's patent, there's trademark. Um, most of these licenses, we're talking about copyright license, 
right? So an MIT license is saying, okay, uh, Microsoft has a copyright. We've written this code. It's ours. We have ownership, and we're granting you the license to use it how you see fit. But a license to copyright is not the same thing as a license to patent, right? So if it were just the MIT license standing on its own, the problem is, all right, well, then we aren't sure. What happens if there's a patent claim down the road? What happens if Microsoft wants to pursue a patent? What happens, you know, you're talking about patent trolls. Someone wants to pursue a patent claim on this code. Right. Um, they tried to address this, and they have this patent promise, right, which uh, you guys have probably seen. Yeah, um, but you, sort of, you need to talk about it anyway because there's a lot of people who don't know what that means. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of people who disagree about what it means. You know, um, <laughs> okay. if you go, if you go to, to GitHub and you open up and you go to the core CLR project, you'll see there's a license file, which is just the MIT license is very short. And then there's a, I think they call it patents.txt or I don't have it open in front of me, but they have a separate file that's this Microsoft patent promise. And what they basically say is, we promise we won't sue you if you use or redistribute our patented or patentable code. It's a promise. Um, it's not a license. Huh. They aren't expressing. They aren't expressly saying we're granting you a license to use in perpetuity this patentable code. We're just saying if you do, we promise we won't sue you. Now, is that promise legally binding? <sighs> See, that's where I think there's a lot of there, there's some gray area. It doesn't seem like it should be gray. Um, you know, we were talking just a bit ago, Carl, before we uh, start recording that um, you know our friend John and I we we've talked about this, um, and he and I don't necessarily agree. John Peterson on this we're issue. About. John Peterson, right? We and, and we don't necessarily agree. He looks at it as it's just a naked promise. So what? It's a promise. They can break the promise. That's true. I mean, there's there are principles of um, you know this is going to be very legal easy, but there you know there's a principle called promissory estoppel. It's a common law principle, uh, at least in, in American law, that says you know if if a promise is granted and you either misrepresent or effectively, you know, you've, you've given this promise in writing and people detrimentally rely upon your promise. Okay. And then you renege or you've made a misrepresentation under that promise that you might be stopped or prevented from making a claim. Um, so maybe promissory estoppel helps uh, downstream users of the, of the core CLR to say, well, if there is a patent claim, you know, we, you told us you wouldn't sue us and now something has changed and we've relied upon your promise. Maybe that helps. Right. But the problem is still, um, at least in my view, some of the problems are it's, it's really just, first of all, they explicitly say in this patent promise document, it's a personal promise. It's a personal promise from Microsoft to you, right? It's not a grant of license. It doesn't necessarily transfer to, to future acquirers or assignees of the patent rights. It's just a promise from Microsoft. Okay. And how does a corporation make a personal promise exactly? Well, well, come on. Corporations are people too, right? Didn't somebody uh, say that? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, it, it's, right, it's a, <laughs> right. It's a, um, well, you know, they, they call it, they call it a personal promise. I mean, it's a, it's a promise from one entity from Microsoft to the recipient of the software. Right. Okay. Yeah. But, but it, but it's personal to that relationship between, between the grantor of the software and the recipient and user. So, so on the one hand, there's sort of down the road concerns if the patent rights get transferred. Another concern is if you really look at what the patent promise says, it says we won't sue you if you use this code and distribute it in a compliant.NET runtime or in an application that is intended to be run in the.NET runtime. You know? 
Yeah. It's not for any use. They limit it. They limit when, when they will or won't sue you. And it's not like they say they will sue you. Sure. But there, there are they limited. This promise only applies under certain conditions. But, under certain but conditions. But what are the conditions under which Microsoft would even care? I mean, it, maybe if you took this thing and started a new .NET framework, is specifically .NET framework that was now had other implementations or something like that, you know, like what Mono, uh, how Mono started. Sure. If you did something for a platform they didn't approve of or something like that, and then you started putting it out there, I don't know if they, it's even saleable at this point, but but you still start putting it out there. Could they sue? Would that be something? That you should worry about. I mean, uh, what I get, what I'm getting at is these seem like real edge cases we're talking about. Most people are going to use this in their, in their web or, you know, products, projects, whatever, and be done with it. Right. And they probably are. And I think that's right. And that's why, you know, I'm not terribly concerned about it. I just think that it's a, yeah. it's sort of an open issue, right? I mean, there are all these, there are all these licenses available that have been reviewed and approved and, and the OSI looks at and says, these are great licenses to use. If, if Microsoft wanted, to open it up to the widest possible audience, but still make sure that they have a guarantee of, you know, an assignment of patent rights for contributors who want to, to make changes to the framework and to grant that pat patent license to downstream users. Why not just use Apache 2? They yeah, used Apache 2. That's the question mark, right? Apache deals with this. Why not right. use it? Right. And why I think invent that's... something new? Like, in, in near as I could tell, the only way to be sure that these promises will actually hold up in court is to take them to court and have some precedent set. Right. Right. And that's what I think is the that's at the core of the it, of the confusion. Right? The core of, of the of the concern is if if this is what you were trying to do, there's a perfectly serviceable license out there that that seemingly did this um that that you Microsoft have used, right? For other areas that you've opened up over the last, you know, one or two years. So why use something different? And I and I think there's some um, you know, there's some question marks there. Do I really think it's going to apply to many cases? No. Do I think that the Microsofts of the world are going to uh, come after individual developers or even, you know, small businesses who who make changes to the framework for their own needs? Uh, I mean, I, I don't think so. Probably not, no. You know, and, and, you know, to Richard's point when you were answering, uh, was it Steve? Steve's question yes. from before? Uh, right. You know, that's really bad. That's bad PR, right? I yep. mean, that's that's bad for business. So... Is it really is it really a practical problem? It's hard to say, but the problem is we just don't know. So lawyers of the world, you know, we're notoriously cautious um, and difficult, and you know we we don't like uncertainty. When we're corporate co counsel for larger organizations, we may be really unclear about you know, like Richard said, why why make the change? Why do something different? There must have been a reason. They had a reason in mind. Um, and it's hard to say. And and again, like I said, they don't actually grant a patent license. The Apache license does. The Apache not only grants a license in the copyright, but it grants a patent license explicitly. The Microsoft patent promise does not. It makes right. a promise. It makes a promise. Yeah. It's not a license. And uh, none of us work for Microsoft. We can't answer this question. But then the debate then is, was there an issue with granting rights to patents in the first place? Or was there a, an issue around Apache? Right. And, and, and you know, I don't know. I don't know. And, you know, they have, it's, it's funny enough. I mean, once you release something, right? Sure. They've released a lot of software under Apache. Yep. You can always have a subsequent release under a different license, right? I mean, they haven't done that. So they don't seem to have any issues with Apache in the other places they've used it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer. Like, you know, I, 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 
I mean, I don't, I'm sure there is an answer. I don't know. Um, I don't know that we have a, a means to get it. Right. Uh, you know, but I think it, I do think it's an interesting thing. I don't think it's going to be a major problem. I'm not as concerned about it as some people are. Um, I just think it's, it's sort of an oddity. The other oddity that's really interesting is, is you look at the CLA, right? If you want to make a contribution back, say you want to do a pull request, you want to make a contribution back to the .NET yep. framework, you sign a pretty restrictive CLA. Right. Uh, right. Which among other things, you do expressly, you know, grant and assign your patent rights back up when you make your contribution. So, yeah, you're not so just, the CLA you're not says we, you're granting us patents, but they're, uh, but their usage license doesn't, which is kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting, right? I mean, I, I you can't make a contribution to the core CLR and just say, "Hey, Microsoft, I promise not to sue you." <laughs> <laughs> right? Like right. That, that won't work. They're not. They're Promises not are one way. Here. <laughs> right. They're not going to accept that, right? So, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, like I said, at the end of the day, I think it's a good thing. I think that the direction Microsoft is going with all of this is great. I think that embracing the open source community has a ton of great advantages. Um, and not only practical advantages in terms of the development growth of the software, but just sort of those those intangible feel-good benefits, right? I mean, it's good to see you know, companies like Microsoft coming around and wanting to embrace the open source community. I mean, isn't uh, part of this just giving confidence to other companies to say, hey, if open source can work for Microsoft, it can work for you? Could be. Could be. I mean, I don't know whether or not Microsoft specifically has that in mind when they decide to open their source code up, but but I think that's a good side effect. Right. I mean, I, I think that in, in general, you know, opening up your source code isn't necessarily dangerous to your organization or to your revenue or, you know, or your bottom line. It's not necessarily right. a bad thing. And I'm, and I'm l- not looking at this from the perspective of other software companies should open source their software, but rather I have dealt with big companies, with enterprise companies who will not allow open source in the door. Right. And then they're confronted with, uh, the .NET framework is open source now, kids. Like, right, that's it, impossible now, right? Yeah, it's, it's unless you're going to ditch the entire Microsoft stack. Oh, you're going to go to Java? Guess what? Well, there's other right. companies. <laughs> right. There's other companies that it's the opposite, right? You, you nothing but open source. Yes. Well, yeah. The trouble is, there's yeah. First of all, I mean, that's just this one. When I give my open source talk, that's one of the first things I actually say is. You use open source in the enterprise. Your enterprise may say don't use it. You certainly do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You certainly do today. There's no question. So to say to have a knee-jerk response and say, well, you, we can't use that because it invalidates our ability. Now, you know, there are open source libraries that if you're in the in the corporate world, you better not touch with a 10-foot pole. Um, you know, there are licenses that are problematic. There, when we get back to like these copy left, this these GPL type licenses, they they create a problem in the enterprise. Um, they have their place, but it's and, it's tough. You know, to it's use. been a long time since we sort of um, listed what the major types of of uh, licenses are. In GPL, if I'm not mistaken, that's the one where if you make any changes, those changes have to be put back in the prog for everybody, right? Right. Well, uh, yeah, that's true. And, and the GPL, um, you know, so to kind of flesh out this idea of a copy left, right? So yeah. a copy left is basically saying. Um, a strong copy left like the GPL is saying, if you are going to use this GPL library and most, most, uh, versions of the GPL say not only using and modifying and redistributing, but even linking, dynamically linking to a GPL library, right? If you are going to package this GPL software with, uh, with your own work, then you need to re, anything you re-release has to be released open and under the GPL. So wait a minute. So 
my I write a piece of software, you know, Carl's whatever utility, and mm-hmm. I use a GPL tool, you know, that does some really cool stuff. But it's not – it's a tool. Mine is an app. So do I have to release my app under the GPL because uh, I use the tool? If you're linking to the to the tool or are you linking to it – I mean, you're linking to it at runtime? Yeah, maybe I'm linking to it at runtime. Sure, yeah. I mean, then, then it's covered Then it's covered by a GPL. So wait a minute. So, so I have to then publish my app? Source code. M- my source code Your under source code. GPL. I under have GPL. To, have to. Copy left. Okay. Right, which is why, which is why in the enterprise, yeah, people don't want silly. to use the GPL. That's like, right. It's a huge problem. Right. It's great in the academic community. It's great in the open source community. Not good in the corporate community. And you, you touched on this. The other side of the spectrum is MIT. Uh, MIT and BSD. What they would, yeah. So let's take a step back. So yeah. at its core, when we talk about open source licenses, right? There's really two broad categories. We're talking about permissive licenses and copyleft licenses. Okay, copyleft, the strong copylefts like the GPL are sort of they're in their own world. They, you know, they like we were just discussing. The permissive licenses have different levels of requirements or restrictions they place on your use. Okay, but it, but ultimately most of the time most permissive licenses allow you to take in, use, modify, redistribute and redistribute under whatever licensing scheme you like. Okay, so an MIT license, which is very short, I mean, it's a couple lines, it's a very short thing, says, all right, here's this software, do what you want. You can modify, use, distribute, at, you know, there, there's, there's, it's a string of like 100, well, not 100, but there's a string of like 20 verbs in this license, it says, you can do all of these things, ready, go. Moses only had 10. Right, exactly. That's so, funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, we can't leave this stand because there are a bunch of versions of GPL, and there there's are. the definition of linking that comes into play as well. That, that's right. That's right. So, so they also, what's happened is on both sides of the spectrum, uh, you know, on the permissive side and, and on the copy left side, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation, we were talking about how in the, the corporate world has started to embrace open source and there's more and more open source being used in the corporate world. And so the licensing schemes have, have had to evolve. So that's where licenses like Apache come into play, or there are what what are, have been kind of termed weak copyleft licenses, which are yep. things like Mozilla license or the LGPL, yep. um, which which look at how exactly you are using the library. So you look at the LGPL; it's still a GPL license, it's still a copyleft license, but if you are merely dynamically linking to the library at runtime and doing nothing else with it, you're not modifying or redistributing that. You're just taking this this LGPL license library and you want to use it for your separate software, then then you're okay as long as whatever modifications you make, if any, to the LGPL library are re-released under that GPL compatible license. But your own source code that just dynamically links is safe. Yeah. Right? And then that, that's the big one that I've run into is there's a certain group of folks who just says, anything that says GPL on it, no. And then you have these... There are good LGPL licenses or uh, products out there where if you make changes to that, you need to re-contribute it back, which you should. Which you should. But your own code is still your own code, licenses it how you wish. All right. So here, here's a really good question. Let's say I'm writing a vertical app and, you know, I'm, I'm selling it into a particular vertical market and it's up with the latest cool techniques and UI and all that stuff. And then out of nowhere, somebody comes along and says, you can't do that without paying me. 
does that stuff happen all the time or is that only something that I need to be worried about if I'm, you know, making a million dollars a day kind of thing off of this app? Well, I mean, it's a, it's less, I mean, to some extent, it's less of a legal and more of a practical consideration, right? Um, how often does that happen? I, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, are we saying because somebody comes and tries to institute a, a patent claim against you saying right, that that's right. my invention? Yeah. Because again, remember, there's a difference between patent and copyright, right? So if someone comes and says, that's my patent and you're using it, I mean, that's why I actually agree with the sentiment at the very beginning of this, uh, you know, our, our conversation. Yeah, I, I try not to get on a soapbox about software patents, um, but I'm not a huge fan. You know, I'm not strictly opposed, but I'm not, you know, there's a lot of times when I think patents are overused. Um, and I think they can be dangerous. I think they can hamper the creative process, and I think they get in the way of people's ability to to write good software. Yeah. Um, does that happen? Sure, it could. I mean, the danger, right, the big danger with patents is it can be really hard or certainly costly to even find out if you're violating someone's patent. Right. Right. That's the well, and this is part. where you get into the reality of patent trolls, which is they don't want to go to court. It's an extortion racket. Pay me 50 right. grand and I go away. You'll spend more than that proving it one way or the other. Exactly. Exactly. That's People just coming wrong. in and saying, no, it's right. It, it is wrong. And that is, you know, how, how pervasive is that behavior? I don't know. I mean, I haven't personally had any clients who have come across that. Um, you know, in, in the five or so years that, that I've been, kind of doing the, the, the product development work with Architect Now, I haven't had that come up. Um, I know it does happen. You know, and, and the trouble is, right, you can, there's these exhaustive patent searches. I'm not a patent lawyer, right? So it's funny enough, you can, yeah, I tell people it's a, it's a strange, strange world, the legal profession. I go to law school for three years. I take the bar. I go to, I'm, I'm in Missouri, so I go to Jefferson City. I get sworn in. Great. The next day, uh, arguably I shouldn't, but I could. I'm licensed. I could represent somebody in a capital case, right? right? I can't go and file for a patent with the patent trademark office. It's a separate bar exam that has other uh, engineering requirements or, or real life experience requirements. Uh, I'm not a patent lawyer, right? So, so I'm not a hundred percent versed in this, but seems know, I wrong. just it, it just seems wrong, yeah. and and it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that that you should have to to deal with because you'd have to hire a patent lawyer probably to go and run an exhaustive search to right. try to confirm that no part of your code is going to run afoul of someone's patent. <sighs> well, Richard, yeah, know what time it is now? It must be a happier time than we're just having. Oh yeah, <laughs> it is happy time. <laughs> it's time to release all my mid-show jokes under the GPL. If, don't do it. If you don't, everybody will have to release their jokes when they use yours. If you don't laugh, you got to tell a better joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Actually, it's time to give away a D Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with Dev Express UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Paul Robson. Hi, right, congratulations, Paul. I'll clap for you, sir. Clappers. I hear the clappers. Clappers are out. And uh, 
Paul just won the D-Experience subscription to Big Pile of Awesome from Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a technology shopping spree worth $5,000 to one lucky member of that .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, uh, Jeff, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, and it can't be a patent lawyer. No. <laughs> right. I'd hire <laughs> which, a lawyer. To which you're going to need, apparently, to write software in America. Uh, what would you buy? What would I buy? I'm kind of on a – so I've got a three-year-old, a uh, three-and-a-half-year-old boy, and he's suddenly into outer space. And I'm kind of an astronomy buff. Cool. So uh, if I could spend money uh, – if I had five grand to spend on anything, I think what I would spend money on is you know, I'd get like a really awesome telescope with one of these special mounts. I've yeah. got a nice SLR. plug a camera in and go out and kind of do some, some astrophotography and really get out there and, and kind of check out the stars and the planets with my kid. He's really into it. This, this winter, uh, we had – at least here in St. Louis, we had some outstanding viewing of, of Jupiter. And he, it's great watching your your little boy go outside and look up and say, "There's Jupiter," and like talk to the planets. He gets really excited. He goes out and checks <laughs> them out. That's so cool. so I think that's what I would spend the money on. And and it's frightening that I could spend that much money on a, on a telescope. But I oh, I in I a second, dude. Yeah, yeah easily. Uh, when you start talking about the the uh, reflector types oh, with yeah. the with the auto aimers, like. Seven grand, ten grand, no problem. And if you, you know, tag along a 4K screen, you know, a giant 4K <laughs> screen so that you could actually sit inside and point your telescope up at the sky and see it on the screen. Oh my God. Now you're it's, talking. Yeah, it's real awesome money. what you can do. I have, I have a, um, an old, I, I dug it out of my parents' closet. Uh, a few months ago, I've got an old Newtonian telescope, but it hasn't been collimated. And I don't even know how to do it, right? I haven't messed with it in 20 years. So I got to figure that out and see if it can still work for me. But it's, I'm going to give that a shot. And then if not, I'll come back and ask you guys for the 5,000 bucks and we'll go, we'll go shop. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, look at this. The Mead 16 inch, the LX200. Wow. Look at a 16 inch with all the automation and the stand. Only seventeen thousand dollars. Oh, what a deal! Well, wow. Would you? Yeah, I could buy a car or a <laughs> telescope. Add to cart. Yeah, no I'm looking. <laughs> uh, will not deliver <laughs> I, I, to Canada. I, I oh well. <laughs> Need sixteen-inch LX six hundred twenty thousand four hundred ninety-nine dollars. Man, man, okay, so we could clearly blow the budget. No problem. Yes, that would. Yeah, that would be. That would. That would be great. Boom! Budget gone. Budget gone. Okay. Yeah, I like telescopes better than licensing, but I, licensing is the job these days. Like, we've got to have a plan around all of this. But I think I think the focus has got to be mostly on when do I not use a library? Like, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you, Richard. I I think you know, give us some practical things to be afraid of. Like, you know, the the edge cases are one thing, but man, when you know, I want to know when I sit down and write some code that nobody's going to come after me for it. Right. What do you, what does a mere mortal do? Well, and I, and I think that it, it's, it is, it's having a plan. It's educating the, not only the decision makers, but the developers on your team, right? I mean, that the thing that I really push for, for shops of any size to do is make sure that, that your developers understand these issues, 
right? I'm not saying you have to have a law degree to, to, to generally understand what's at stake, right? So to make sure, because here's the problem, right? I'm a junior mid-level dev. I came in, I'm sitting at a desk somewhere in a, you know, in a 10,000 person company. I'm on a 25 or 50 person team and I've been tasked with something and told, Hey, no problem. Take your time. We only need it done three days ago. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, and, and just get the job done. Right? So what am I going to do? I'm going to say, Oh, God, well, I, gotta, I better figure this out. So I'm going to get online. I, I wholeheartedly think it's just in most situations, unless there's a really good reason, it's stupid to completely reinvent the wheel. Right? Yeah. Why do that? I mean, there's good tools out there. People write good software. So what am I going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to get online. I'm going to search. I'm going to ask, you know, the repository of all knowledge that is the Google search engine. I'm going to say, tell me what I need. Right. And someone on Stack Overflow is going to say, use this library. Right. And I'm going to check it out. I'm going to say, oh, that looks easy. I'm going to plug it in. Right. What I don't want to do if I'm the, you know, junior dev is I don't want to go to my boss or God forbid have to write a, write a, an email to legal and say, Hey, is this one okay? Right. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to freeze up. I don't want to mess with that. Nobody wants to talk to the lawyers. I'm a lawyer. I don't like talking to lawyers. Right. (laughs) So like, so no one is really going to want to, um, to do that. So how do you, how do you make sure that you're protecting your organization? Uh, and I think it's through educating your team and empowering your team, right? So I think two of the best things you can do is explain why these things matter, right? Everybody downloads things that you get to check the box. Do you accept these terms and conditions? Sure. Right. Nobody reads the li- No one, no one, no one reads the EULA, right? right? No one reads the license. If they did, no one would ever check the box. One of Mark, <laughs> one of Mark Miller's funniest bits on Mondays was a product he invented called the install buddy. That uh, just it automatically clicks the next button until your app is installed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, but that's just but that's what people do. I mean, effectively, you're automating what people do anyway. Yeah, right. right. They're doing something else. They got Facebook in a different tab. They're doing that and just mindlessly clicking until everything's done. Right. So, how do you prevent that? You know, it would be great if organizationally, what teams or companies would do is say. You know, because there is no one right or wrong answer. Sometimes an LGPL library is okay. Um, a lot of times MIT is okay. You know, there are some organizations where even MIT, because of the uncertainty and the patent concerns, because remember, MIT doesn't grant a patent license, right? Right. There's no right or wrong answer every single time for every organization, for every license. So what's better probably is for organizationally for a company to say, okay, we have reviewed these. We're pretty comfortable. We know. They're like, here's a list of 15 different OSI-approved open-source licenses that are very common, that are out there in the wild, that you see all the time. And you know what? We've seen them. They're okay. We're comfortable with them. They're great. Yeah. All right. Um, here's a list of three or four that we're scared of. We've actually reviewed them. We've actually thought about it and decided that they're not okay. And then, you know, if you come across some random outlier, it may be a case-by-case you know, case basis, right? But then empower the team. Let the dev dev leads and let the developers know that, hey, if you see one of these 15 licenses, they're fine. But at least because what that does is it encourages that developer to check. They don't have to read the whole thing. Just check. Right. Just look. Um, now, it can be a little deceiving. It can be a little tricky sometimes because even licenses that have the same name, I have different versions, right? Like the MIT license, for example, there's at least two very common license versions of the MIT, right? There's this XPAT and the X11. They're both very, very similar. Uh, but they don't necessarily say right there in the header that it's one or the other, 
It says MIT license, right? So there's still a little gray area, but to generally be able to tell your team, here's some, here's some bright line rules that will cover 90% of your situations. Yeah. Then you empower your team to make wise decisions. And you know what? If they open something up and they at least take the 10 seconds to try to figure out and identify, oh, this is a GPL V3 license and I know that's a no-no for our organization. Great. At least maybe I look at what the second result in Google was, right? And maybe that one's okay. Um, you know, and I think that just that sort of preparation, it doesn't have to be a difficult process, right? It just takes a little bit of legwork up front to, to make those decisions and, and to make smart decisions for your company. Um, and if you do that, then probably the vast majority of the time you're going to be okay, right? I mean, open source, most open source authors are writing their code and are opening up the source and they're li- giving the licenses they are because they want people using their software. Yeah, that's the point, right? Right. I mean, they want people using and improving their software. That's what they want, right? So if you remember that, then most of the time, most authors probably aren't concerned about coming after you. You just need to make sure the organization is comfortable. Yeah. So I mean, so so have a plan. I mean, that's the biggest thing is just have a plan. Don't just don't wing it, right? Don't wing it because it does come up, and and it's not just bec- it's not just at the time that you write the code. We had a client. Um, who we wrote a, uh, we wrote a WPF client for it, but he had a streaming service. It was like a photo sharing thing. He was a startup out in California and, um, we were just one team. We were kind of his windows team. He had guys doing the API. He had, uh, mobile apps and web pieces and we were just writing the windows app. Um, but then he, but then he was approached and acquired by a fairly substantial acquirer. And the first thing they asked is, we need a list of everything you use that's open source. Hmm. Right? Wouldn't it be nice if he just knew? Right? Yeah. Here it is. No that, problem. We know. That we've is vetted. not an easy question to answer. You it's know, not the, an easy question to answer. It's very interesting because there's a parallel going on in the music business, which is uh, companies are more apt to license your music if there's absolutely no samples. And, you know, if every sound is original. You've made every sound that's coming out of this thing because of the threat of lawsuits. Right. Well, and now you're making the argument that a lot of devs want to make anyway, which is that whole not invented here syndrome. I should just write it all myself, that I don't need to know this stuff, and it's never a concern to us. Yeah. But that's like a race to the bottom, Richard. I mean, that's that's the problem, is then you're just, I mean, it's... Yeah, but it's getting easier. I mean, it's getting easier and easier and easier to do it yourself. Whereas before, especially in the, in the earliest days of Windows development anyway, it wasn't. It wasn't always that easy. I, I think I disagree because you still depend on the .NET core. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, I, <laughs> right, when I exactly say write right. it yourself, I'm talking about uh, – I guess I am talking about using .NET, yeah. Right. I mean, if you, well, this was a couple of years ago. This was um – Oh, it was around the time our son was born. So this is over three years ago. So a lot of, a lot of, you know, the .NET stuff wasn't open yet, but you know, there were things as simple as toolkits. It was a WPF app and we were using a control toolkit that was open. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it was fine, right? It was fine. Um, but it, it's just so easy, especially because of w- what is easy is installing these tools. You, you know, you open NuGet, you look at the gallery and you pull something in. Mm. Yep. So it's so easy to incorporate these open source libraries and that's a good thing. That's a good thing, right? So it's just making sure that you know what it is when you do it. Keep some sort of list. Try to have some idea uh, of what you've got, right? You shouldn't need to go and perform an extensive audit of your software every time someone asks, right? You need to know. You should know what's there. 
Yeah, it now it's the same way you actually know where all your source code is. Like you, you kind of have to manage your licenses the same way. Right. What about trademarks? This is something that comes up every once in a while. Somebody will say, you know, come to me and say, yeah, we want to do this app, but we want to tr- get a trademark first. You know, sure. as if it's a copyright or as if it's, you know, meaningful. And, and I just wonder about that. Uh, it's, I mean, it's meaningful. It's not necessarily meaningful to your software or your code. It's meaningful to your identity, right? So, you know, we talked about copyrights. We talked about patents, right? A copyright, there, there are three different forms of ownership that you're asserting, basically, right? Copyright is, is an assertion of, of authorship. Right. Right. And patent is effectively protecting your rights to, to an invention, to a process, to a, you know, to a, to a way of solving a problem, a novel, non-obvious means of solving a problem. Right. Right. Trademark is more of a protection and assertion of identity. So a right? logo, so, for example, or a, or a name. Or even a name, yeah. right? The name, the name Nike. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. It, you know, it, it's your service mark. Right. So you could take the .NET Rocks logo and you could register it as, a, I mean, it is a trademark, but you could register it just like you can register a patent. You can register a trademark and describe it in detail and say, here's what it is. And this is our service mark and it protects your identity so that other people don't appropriate it and use it to, you know, either, either assume or act like they're you or even to use your trademark for their own benefit to say, Hey, uh, slap the .NET Rocks logo on their site. And somehow give themselves some air of legitimacy. Not to, not that they're claiming they are you guys, but just to say, hey, here it is. And put, you know, so you're protecting your identity. So does that protect your software? No, no. Yeah, you know, it, it protects who you are. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in some of the in some of the open source licenses that talk not so much about identity, but talk about attribution, mm-hmm. right? And in a way, trademark is more of an attribution issue, right? It's more of a protecting protecting who you are, protecting yeah. the mark of who you've who've claimed to be. Right. Does that make sense? And anybody can trademark anything, right? Just go to LegalZoom or even the trademark <laughs> office and pay a couple hundred dollars, and you they search it up for you, and then you're done. Yeah, I mean, it's not that. It's not like filing a patent. No, right? it's, it's not. Like- and I guess that's what I wanted to um, come to is that I've I've heard people express concern about you know intellectual property, and the trademark seems to be like the low hanging fruit, but. What does that give you? I mean, I, I, and I know that you sort of answered that there, but if let's say I have an app and it's called, you know, Fuzbimitsin or something, it does some silly word, right? That we all make up for these products. I go and I trademark that and somebody else comes out with a product called that or uses that in a, in a business or something like that. You know, I, I've, I don't know. Is that what happened to, uh, to Metro? You know, is it a trademark name for a for a grocery store or something like that? Is that why? Or the, oh, I, I forgot that even happened. Yeah, Gosh. was that uh, a right, trademark? We're not, we're, not, we're not supposed to. We're not even supposed to say that word well, anymore. Well, we we don't work for Microsoft, so we can say <laughs> right, it all so day we, long. Metro, 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 metro. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I have to assume that's what I have to assume that's what happened. I don't I don't know for sure, but but it has, yeah. somebody had to come and say, hey, no, you, you know, you can't call it that, and became modern apps or whatever. You know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, it seems like an obvious thing that they would have checked, right? Like yeah. before they before they paste it all over the web and all over the world and say, "Get ready for Metro apps." You think you think they would have checked? Um, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, it was probably something along those lines, right? So to take your, uh, I like the name Fuzbemitsin. Is that what we have? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Fuzbemitsin. 
LLC. Dot com. Right. Dot com. Good luck spelling that. Dot com. It would be, I'm sure it would be greatly sought after domain. So, yeah, I mean, if somebody else came out, especially if they wanted to do something that was remotely similar or, or in the software space, right, you'd be able to say, no, 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 because what you're doing is not only protecting your own identity, but you're protecting confusion, right? You may have written the best app ever, and someone's not necessarily even trying to do something directly to compete with you, but it's the name confusion, right? You're trying to prevent name confusion, identity confusion. You don't want someone to have a trademark that sounds like or looks just like yours and to give the impression that you also wrote this uh, and, and maybe maybe this other... Yeah, this other guy comes along and just writes a piece of garbage, right? And you don't want to make that association. So, and totally understandable. I, I want to end this with uh, a discussion about the legal system in America versus everywhere else. Hmm. The loser pays syndrome. This is something that I talk about that I really didn't even know about all that much until, you know, getting outside the country and talking to people, out, you know, outside the country. And everybody's like, oh, my God, you know, they're litigious society that you live in there you know um so so talk about that loser pays versus winner pays and how that can be a real problem well you, you know it's a bigger problem than just loser pays and winner pays it's a problem of, of a global industry that has to somehow deal with jurisdiction and deal with differing laws from place to place um you know i i i mean it's it's a good example not to We'll come back to the, the loser pays idea, but take something as simple as I've had people come to me after my talk and say, Hey, I've written something. I just want people to be able to use it for whatever they want. Yeah. I don't care. I don't even care about copyright. I don't want copyright. I just want it to be in the public domain. Well, that's great, but like certain, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think, uh, like France and Germany maybe like don't even really recognize public domain in the same way. Right. So mm. to, to just dedicate something doesn't necessarily work, right? It's actually important to assert your copyright so that then you can grant, and you can't give a license to something you don't own. So you have to assert your copyright, ironically, in order to be able to then give rights over that material to somebody else. Um, Carl, you're talking about in litigation, just to be clear, when you talk about a loser pays, winner pays thing, you're talking about the... Yeah, so you violated a copyright, maybe, or maybe you haven't. Maybe, you know, like we're talking about patent trolls or copyright trolls out there. Yeah, yeah, right. Maybe you have a successful product, right? Let's say you have a successful product. And somebody says, you know, well, it's very close to my product. I'm going to sue them. So, so they sue you and you know, chances are you either don't have enough money to to go through the lawsuit or you just decide, well, you know, 50 grand is going to make this troll go away. Right. And so there's, it's sort of set up to give an extortion kind of uh, environment, right? It's set up for extortion. So because what happens everywhere else in the world, if I'm not mistaken, is it, you'd say, go ahead and sue me. And all of the cost is put on oh, the sure. person right. who brings the lawsuit if, in fact, uh, it's found that you're completely wrong. They're completely wrong. If they're completely wrong, right. Yeah, if they lose, they pay. Well, it's right. And, and, and it sort of happens as, as almost as a matter of law, I think, in some jurisdictions. Whereas here, I mean, people actually fight and sue over the legal fees, right? Yeah. Um, it's not an automatic thing necessarily in American law. It's just simply people fight over everything. People just fight over everything. Right. I mean, and, and that's not just necessarily true in the software field. I'm right across, and I don't know if it's still as big of an issue. And I haven't practiced, you know, I haven't been engaged in the practice of law for five years, but I, you know, and, and I'm not a litigator, I should point out. Um, 
but right across the river from me, over uh, there's a county over in Illinois, Southern Illinois, that's just known for class action lawsuits, right? And people just sue. Like everyone sues there. You find any reason possible to get jurisdiction in this county because it is friendly to giant class action lawsuits. Um, I mean, people play the system, and they do. And the problem with the problem with the legal fees isn't even necessarily who pays them. I mean, part of the problem is just the unbelievable cost of legal fees in the first place, right? I mean, that that in and of itself is an issue. Um, but I don't think that I just don't think it's a unique issue to software. I think that no, it's people not. talk people talk about patent reform, but it's really an issue of litigation reform, right? It's it's really an issue of legal reform in the system overall, uh, and w- which is is going to be difficult or impossible to come by, right? I mean, that's a very hard thing to push through, and there's a lot of resistance. But I think that the trouble isn't so much who should have to pay the legal fees. The trouble is the fear, right? And that's where the extortion comes in. The trouble is the fear. If somebody calls me and threatens me, the reason I pay up isn't even because it makes the person go away. It's the the complete uncertainty. Right. I have no idea what this is going to cost me. Right, I have no idea. It could cost it could cost me everything. I can't, and I, and that's probably more than I can afford. The extortion amount, as we're calling it, probably is more than I can afford. But but getting involved in litigation could drag on for years, cost a small fortune, could bankrupt me, close my company, and and then I could win. Yeah. Right. And and, and for what? Right. For what purpose? Well, I've uh, heard the description of winning a lawsuit is like winning an earthquake. Right. Right. Like there is no winner. One wall of my building is still standing. Right. I won. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and everything else is gone. That's a good analogy. And yeah, nobody, nobody wants to get involved in lawsuits. No, I mean, it's, it's not a fun, it's not a fun system, right? It's not like you go in saying, all right, this will be fun. We're going to duke it out. I mean, in the end, everybody loses. Everybody loses. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about, about the actual judicial process in other countries to know you know, just how different it is. I mean, I imagine we have a pretty good reputation in the United States for being outrageous. Um, so I, I imagine it's better in most places. Um, is the system in Canada the same as it would be, you know, it's, it's not like ours, right? It's basically the English system, which, you know, the norm is on judgment, loser pays. Right. Right. Wouldn't that be nice? It would discourage. It would discourage well, a lot that's of those the, And that is exactly the, the point. point right? It does. You, you've got to hit a certain threshold to actually be willing to litigate. It, in, it incents settlements and discourages these massive uh, damage awards. Like, that just doesn't happen in Canada. Yeah. Or a lot of other places. Or, mo- or, most, or most places. Right. I mean, you very rarely hear about, you, I mean, other than big corporations suing other giant corporations, you don't usually hear about, you know, 50 million and 200 million dollar settlements. Right. Um, you know, whether, whether it's about somebody used this, these two lines of code and I feel they were mine or, you know, I spilled hot coffee on myself because I'm an idiot and I didn't know how hot it was going to be. So I sue for this. I, I, the, one of my favorite cases was the Cesta was successfully sued by a guy. Because he crashed his plane because he ran out of fuel because it didn't say in the manual you have to make sure you have fuel. That's just ridiculous. As one of the many examples of why general aviation aircraft are so expensive. It's not the cost of the machine. It's the cost of the lawyers. Right. That's why why most things are so expensive. Something's got to change. Right. I mean, my, my, it's funny. My wife and I actually, we actually read a lot of, man- we buy new things. We read the manuals, not because we really care about what to do, but we think it's kind of funny because there's always something in there. There's always something in there. It's like, well, that was in there because someone somewhere thought that was a good idea. Right. right? And someone got sued. Right. It's great to just read the things, you know, the, the, um, 
we had a fold up for, for, for our first kid. We had one of these big fold up, uh, stroller systems, right? And the first thing about the instructions for closing and storing it was remove baby. <laughs> it's like really? I mean, like that that totally remove the baby. Okay. So someone somewhere didn't do that, the baby got hurt, and there was a lawsuit. That's right? awesome. And and was successful. And, and successfully sued. Successfully sued because they right. didn't take the What baby I want everybody to do is go over to the window and open it up and yell, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take it anymore. <laughs> oh wait, that's been done. Right. But you know, my and my concern here is this lottery mentality oh you've been injured in an accident i could make you millions of dollars yeah that stuff um when i have friends from overseas who come to the states and spend some time here and they watch tv you know the, they always say the, the the things that astound them the most are the first couple times they they walk into like a walmart and the first time they turn on the tv and they see the commercials for the pharmaceuticals they see and the commercials the commercials they see for lawyers yep just blows yeah. their mind because they, they said they just don't they don't see that stuff anywhere it else. Does, yeah, anywhere else. Those both those classes of just bizarre. Right. Anyway, I I mean I don't want to spend the last part of the show just bashing the American legal system because <laughs> uh, it's just it's okay. A darn I, it's okay. Easy. I've effectively, so, I've effectively so removed easy. myself from it, so I don't take it too personally. Yeah. I know it's so easy, isn't it? Right. But I mean, all in all, this open source thing is good. It, it, in a lot of ways, it's making it easier for us to not fall into the not invented here syndrome right. this is actually i think the best way we've got to share software it used to be worse yeah yeah i mean there's there's nothing really bad about about the opening of software so long as you know as long as we respond appropriately we you know as long as the community can evolve with changes not only in the legal system but as, as technology changes to kind of stay current to make sure that these licenses grow to make sure that organizations grow and and embrace it right i mean if you if you embrace it i think it's a great thing and ultimately this, this is about competitive advantage i can deliver better software in less time and maintain it for less money by leveraging all that stuff that's out there and being right. fed all right so here's another thing, and we can maybe end on this note. I don't know. But uh, I hear a lot of um, Silicon Valley types uh, throwing stones at Microsoft lately saying, all of a sudden, Microsoft is all open source, and they love open source. And that's not really true. Um, in, what was it, uh, show 81 from uh, .NET Rocks. Show 81 now I'm talking <laughs> about, all right? This was uh, September 20th, 2004. Joe Stagner was on, and we were just talking about different things. And this is around the time, you know, 2004, where, you know, uh, open source is beginning to become really interesting. And Joe said, because he worked for Microsoft, he says, Microsoft is not anti-open source. We're just anti-GPL. <laughs> and I thought that was really telling because open source OSS is, means a lot of things. Yeah. And, you know, and then look what happened, what started happening with Microsoft embracing all these open source projects. They're making it into Visual Studio and now right. the whole .NET framework. Well, not the whole .NET framework, but you know what I'm saying. Give the it core. time. Give it yeah. another year or two. Right. It so, could happen. And and also, and I brought this up in the panel, too, which is, you know, after it was clear that Microsoft isn't making money on the operating system anymore. That, you know, that's not where they're going to, their bread and butter is going to come from services in Azure. And, you know, then it makes sense for everybody to have everything and the most up-to-date everything all the time. Right? Well, you know, and, the, and, and I read 
along those lines and where the profit centers really are. I mean, in you you read articles and then you read the the deepest darkest corners of the internet, which are the comment sections. Right, <laughs> very deep, very right? dark. Oh no, yeah. wait, very shallow, very dark. Well, except for .netrocks.com. Right, right, right. .netrocks.com. So, we have great comments. Yes, yeah, so but sometimes very you read the uh, yes, but you sometimes you read the comments in in these articles, you know, tech articles talking about how Microsoft is opening this or that, and there's always the haters who can come out and say, oh well, they have an ulterior motive. Well, they're a corporation, right? So. That, that, and that's yeah, okay. one would argue their motive is not that ulterior. They pretty much wear it on their sleeves. Right. right. I mean, their their job their job is to is to make money, right? And so and there's and there's actually not anything wrong with that. And so, you know, to say you know, so I've, the people who have complained the most, they're like, oh well, yeah, sure, they're kind of opening it, but you just wait, they'll spring the trap. What 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 trap? Like they're opening up software. They they identified. That that's you know the the OS and Office that's not where it's at for them anymore. If they're going right. to become a services oriented company, I mean, look at you know you look at who the CEO is now, right? So yeah. if they're going to kind of come from that approach, then sure, it's great. They open it up, they encourage more people to use it, they encourage you know .NET components to be able to be cross plat. That's great. That's great. And yes, it will help them get their tools and their software and run their services in more environments, which will make them more money. So what? Yep. So what? We got to steal Scott Hanselman's quote from the panel show earlier this week. We are not as organized as we would need to be to be as evil as you think we are. <laughs> That's a great quote. <laughs> I've heard him say something very similar to that before. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not that easy to be that evil when there's so many. Yeah. Ways. It's complicated. Uh, well, you know, we could go on and on. I know we could. And I, and I wish I had a bourbon right here and uh, another hour to talk, but we don't. I'm sorry. But, uh, Man, Jeff, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been great. You bet. Thank you, guys. It's been fun. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.